The following views presented in this hour do not reflect the views of KDVS, KDVS sponsors, or the University of California. Welcome, welcome all to No Police Radio. You can hear us every other week discussing all things abolition, from tuition to the prison industrial complex, everything that has to go to make way for a free university. We'll feature conversations with guest organizers, abolitionist scholars, and people who have taken part in the university's radical history, all with an eye towards how we get free. This is No Police Radio here on KDVS 90.3 FM. Policial romântico, só vi Valdomiro Pena, o Cândido. Valdomiro anda muito preocupado com as ideias de seu editor, que querendo modernizar o jornal, serra e esquece o romantismo que ele criou e ele conquistou. Flamengo no quarto sala, desplicente decorado, onde depois da matinal, média e pão com manteiga, num boteco da esquina, as pressas manda botar na conta, e se manda para o jornal, a folha popular, sua glória nacional, bate o ponto pra comar velha perua e com a sua gangue cai nas ruas, bate o ponto pra comar velha perua e com a sua gangue cai nas ruas. Transando com gente de todo tipo e espécies Como, por exemplo, camelos, policiais Bicheiros, sambistas, otários e marginais Valdomiro Pena Topa toda hora com lances incríveis e perigosos Sem perder o seu humor Heróico e romântico Salve Valdomiro Pena O Cândido Salve Valdomiro Pena O Cândido That was Waldomiro Pena by George Benjor. And once again, you're listening to KDVS Davis, 90.3 FM. And this is one of your hosts on No Police Radio here today. I am Local Bag, and I'm here with a good friend. Hey, it's DJ Ratstar again, coming and reporting in this time on um, a pretty <laughs> pretty difficult topic, as mm-hmm. most weeks are. Yeah. But yeah, we're really excited for this show today. Um, Yeah, we're, you know, just a quick content warning. When we're talking about um, police and police abolition, uh, talking about cops always means talking about violence, racism, incarceration, and also mentions of sexual violence, which will come up in today's episode. So I just wanted to give a quick content warning if those are not things that you would like to hear, uh, uh, if those aren't things that you would like to hear us discuss then um, maybe today's episode isn't the episode for you. But um, we have a really, really 
really special guest um, that's going to be joining us later today, uh, Professor um, Orisanmi Burton, um, professor, associate professor at um, the American University. Really, really excited. Um, and we're going to be talking about their book. Um, yeah, we're going to be talking about their book, Tip of the Spear, Black Radicalism, Prison Repression, and the Long Attica Revolt. Um, yeah, we introed this episode last week because, or two weeks ago, because it was, it's that, it's that special. We had it planned so far in advance, um, which is, which is quite unlikely, um, of no police radio. We are pretty, pretty on the whim. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, we've had this one planned for a while, so I'm really, really, we're both really excited about this. And I know a lot of listeners are also really excited about this. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah. What else are we going to be talking about today? Um, we also have a brief bad cop good project um talking about how to write to people on the inside as well as the going more in depth about the california prison labor authority Mm. and what some of our listeners may not know about that really interesting um yeah Mm -hmm. we'll end our as as per usual we will end today's episode with our bad cop good project segment so that's a little a little teaser for y'all for later Mm -hmm. um and yeah we are going to jump to a quick music break and right when we get back um we're gonna do a quick introduction of our guest and we'll be joined by orisanmi burton
That was Road of the Lonely Ones by Madlib. And with that, we'll jump right into today's uh, meat and potatoes. Um, would you like to get us started, DJ Ratstar? Absolutely. So our conversation today concerns prison resistance and prison uprisings. In the United States, perhaps the best known book written from prison itself is George Jackson's <laughs> collection of letters, which is called Soledad Brother, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, Jackson was radicalized in prison and he became a member of the Black Panthers and co-founded the Black Guerrilla family. And in one of his late letters, he copies out the Claude McKay poem, If I Must Die. Jackson then sadly was killed by guards in 1971 and his death would be um, a catalyst for the Attica uprising 3,000 miles away. So, likely the most dramatic prison rebellion in national history is how people would describe the Attica rebellion and um, Jackson's impact was f felt really strongly about that, so that's why we're bringing this context in. Um, in advance of that event, inmates shared copies of the same poem read at Jackson's funeral. So we have um, a version of McKay's reading on YouTube and we decided to play the audio here for you all today. If We Must Die is the poem that makes me a poet among colored Americans. If We Must Die let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious pot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men, we'll face the murderous cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying but fighting back. That was Claude McKay performing, um, performing his poem, If We Must Die. And yeah, thank you for that introduction, DJ Ratstar. And more than a century after this poem was written and more than a half a century after, after Attica, um, this would be the model for the poem, If I Must Die, by Palestinian poet uh, Rifat Al-Arir, um, uh, who wrote it before, let's see, who wrote that poem before being killed by Israeli bombs this past December, may he rest in power. This is only one of the lines we can trace from Attica to the open air prison of Gaza. And I will read that poem for you right now. If I Must Die by Rifat Alarir. If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings, make it while, make it white with a long tail so that a child somewhere in Gaza 
while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, sees the kite, my kite you made, flying up above, and thinks for a moment an angel is there, bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope, let it be a tale. Which brings us to the subtitle of a very new and important book, whose full title is Tip of the Spear, Black Radicalism, Prison Repression, and the Long Attica Revolt. It is a revolt that in some sense continues to this day. We are fortunate, very fortunate to have with us the book's author, Professor Orisanmi Burton. Orisanmi, are you, can you hear us okay? Yes, I can. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank you Hi. so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. Um, yeah, we'll just we'll just uh, jump right in. We'll just jump right into the interview. Rathsar, do you want to start us off with the first question? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I want to ask to those of us who haven't read your book or maybe haven't heard of the Attica Revolt before, um, what do you feel is the importance of it for our listeners? Sure. Well, I, you know, the Attica Rebellion is one of the most written about um, events in, in U.S. Uh, prison history. And the dominant narrative of it is that it was a, a four-day rebellion that was largely confined to Attica Prison, which is in western New York, and that it was primarily a, a, a movement that aimed to improve prison conditions. Um, uh, and so my book really tries to um, situate Attica within a, a different context. It tries to essentially decarcerate that, the, the, the narrative of Attica. It shows that Attica was uh, actually a protracted revolt that uh, unfolded over at least a year, but actually longer than that, that it um, was a movement that uh, circulated across multiple carceral sites, um, that while the reform of prison conditions uh, was a primary focus of the movement, that uh, it was actually revolutionary and abolitionist in its orientation, that it was internationalist, that the people who um, led this movement um, Many of them, you know, black and Latinx radicals, but also um, sort of uh, apolitical, uh, assumptively apolitical people who had gone in for uh, committing social crimes and were then radicalized through the process of their incarceration, that they were thinking of themselves as uh, anti-colonial revolutionaries who were engaging in a larger global struggle against empire from within the prison. And so um, that's really the, the, the key or one of the key interventions in the book. And ultimately, I argue that this is the sort of revolutionary black radical origins of the modern day sort of abolitionist movement and abolitionist politics, which attempts to sort of disabuse us of the fallacy that abolition sort of started in um, academic circles, which I think it, it could be very easy for one to believe that um, now because of how popular abolition is, but really to show that it grew out of this sort of criminalized tradition of rebellion that emerged within prisons themselves. 
That it is yeah, that is a really great answer. Um I really loved reading about that part in the book that you were describing a lot of what <laughs> how this like really redefined, you know, a type of abolition that, you know, kind of as you said, like wasn't really something that was talked about in academia in the same way. And that kind of goes into a next question that we have, um, which I wanted to ask, what can the Attic Revolt teach us about the ways that resistance can look like? And um, on that, when you described, you know, um, an abolitionist world making that mm-hmm. was central to the movement, um, what are some important takeaways that are reflected in the anarchistic practices that you say are inherent in black resistance? <laughs> sure. So, so one of the things that's important to keep in mind um, is that the book really, like the, the theoretical orientation of the book comes out of the sort of organic knowledge production that was generated through the process of revolt. And so I'm really not, proposing to present readers with, you know, any new cutting edge information that sort of I developed, mm-hmm. um, but rather to narrate and to um, rigorously document and theorize the intellectual production that had already been circulating. And one of the interventions that the people at the front of this movement made 50 years ago is that prisons are really a microcosm of the broader world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in that way, they become kind of a method and a paradigm through which to understand how political resistance, political movements and repression operate in the broader world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the question is spot on. Because by looking at what happened in this prison movement, we can then sort of extrapolate out and think about how politics unfolds um, elsewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that's really important about Attica, especially if we decenter the sort of demand to improve prison conditions, again, not because they're not important, people Mm -hmm. deserve to live with dignity, right? So it's not that I'm saying that sort of reformist demands for you know, um, prison programs or, you know, um, better food, that these things aren't important. They just don't represent the totality of what the rebels wanted, especially if you focus on the revolutionaries uh, among um, um, the self-described revolutionaries and, and people who the state understood to be revolutionaries. If you focus on what they want, then you see a whole different sort of layer of political activity that was happening that has nothing to do really with um, petitioning the state for improved conditions, but rather has to do um, with how to create and build a new world through the process of rebellion, which is what I argue was actually happening in Attica, right? And so Mm -hmm. part of what they did was they established a commune and started to figure out how they could distribute resources to start to meet their own needs in ways that really served as a microcosm for what people would have to do in a revolutionary situation more broadly and, in fact, reflected um, 
the ways in which other revolutionary movements had unfolded elsewhere. You know, I make the comment in the book that Attica took place um, exactly 100 years after the Paris Commune. And one of the things that Marx yeah. says about the, the Paris Commune is that, you know, the true measure of its success was its working existence. And I think this is the same thing for Attica, that rather than looking at what they were asking the state to give them, we should look at what they were doing for themselves and what, how that process transformed their consciousness. And I think that that actually should serve as the paradigm for how we understand uh, abolitionist politics more broadly. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's really interesting to see how uh, how reformist policies and reformist politics in general um, continue to influence broader revolutionary struggles across the world today. Um, can you tell us a little bit of like how we see the same types of reformist policies and politics emerge in, um, in current movements? And what are some daily practices that... Um, abolitionists and abolitionist thinkers um, can implement in their daily lives to kind of decenter that um, decenter that kind of narrative because even now um, they're I believe like in the introduction we mentioned that it's like a similar it's a similar revolution that's ongoing today and it will be ongoing until um, prisons are completely and the carceral system is completely abolished um, but just recently like Colorado um, Colorado like created like all like trans only facilities um, which people are, you know, kind of expressing as groundbreaking. And this is, you know, pe like you said, people deserve to live, <clears throat> live in dignity. But um, like the overall goal of um, like prison abolitionists is, you know, to abolish the carceral system in its entirety. So what do these like what do these reformist um, like landmark cases kind of do to the movement as a whole, in your opinion? Yeah, so a couple of things. The first um, is that, you know, on the one hand, I try to show the sort of radical and anti-colonial roots of the abolitionist, the contemporary abolitionist movement. On the other hand, it's important for me to say now that everyone who was in Attica was not an abolitionist, right? And these are all people, you know, these are mm -hmm. the, the protagonists of my book are on the left, and some of them are not abolitionists based on the principle that they want to reserve the right to incarcerate their enemies. Mm, yeah. And so abolition was, in fact, uh, a debate. You know, there were third world Marxists and there were, there were anarchists. There were, there were all kinds of political tendencies that were all incarcerated behind the walls and, and, and were trying to sort of work through a set of contradictions um, as they were sort of... Uh, enmeshed in this rebellion. So I, I, I want to sort of point that out, uh, mm -hmm. because I actually think that that tension within the movement was really important. Um, but I also think, so the, the big picture argument of the book, right? So we've been talking mm -hmm. about what Attica is, which is, that's the historical part of the book, narrating the unfolding of that rebellion and its repression. But in terms of the theory of the book, it's that prisons are best understood as a domain of war. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it's a specific kind of war. It's a counterinsurgency war. It's a, it's a strategy of war that was adopted um, from, you know, imperial efforts to crush 
uh, anti-colonial and revolutionary movements all over the world, and and the sort of insinuation of that style of war into the normalized routines of prison management. That's mm -hmm. the argument I make in the second half of the book. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'm saying that, and the reason why I think that, you know, abolitionists and people on the left need to start thinking in a really deep way about war and counterinsurgency is mm -hmm. because it's not only a sort of military strategy, it's a, it's a technique, it's a generalized technique of governance at this point. And mm -hmm. what, and, and part of part of that technique is the weaponization of reform mm. to create and to widen cleavages within movements mm -hmm. um, and to separate people who are uh, who uh, who understand themselves and who were understood by the state to be revolutionaries, people who can't be bargained with or bribed or induced or bought off. From people who can, whose political activity can be channeled through different pathways that ultimately end up stabilizing the system itself. That's the political function of reform as counterinsurgency. Mm -hmm. And it's so effective mm -hmm. because it masquerades as a victory mm -hmm. for people yeah. who are challenging these movements, right? right. And so these, these gender responsive prisons are an example of a kind of counterinsurgent logic. In which, in which actual critiques of the carceral system as a form of gender violence get mm. co-opted and then regurgitated back to us and say, okay, so now we're going to make prisons that respect people's gender identity, right? Mm. Which, yeah. which, is the, which, which is an actual, uh, it's a, it, it, no, people weren't asking for that, right? It's a, right. It's no. a way to, it's a way to channel energy um, and, um, you know, repackage narratives in ways that ultimately end up stabilizing the system and creating the conditions for it to metastasize. Yeah, that, that really does put it into perspective for sure, because um, definitely my first reaction to seeing that they created a a new type of prison segment for specifically transgender people is that it just feels like they ignored that we're saying like hey we we don't like prisons because you know the gender violence that happens in them to them going like well maybe if we stop doing the gender violence you'll be okay with prisons but that's not <laughs> what we mean at all um, right, but the idea is that that reform will actually satisfy a fraction mm -hmm. of people who were um, sort of um, contesting the prison's legitimacy, and right. even that, and even in creating that split, right within what might have uh, previously been a sort of coalition. Mm -hmm. um, works in in their favor right because right. then now you now the movement has to do more damage control or has to think about you know coming up with a different narrative or do more political education right and mm -hmm. so this is just kind of how it works and this is a strategy that should be uh anticipated right mm -hmm. absolutely do you want to ask so, question? yeah so I guess the next question going into more of seeing like, you know, the prison as a part of like a general warfare 
that's happening. Um, I wanted to ask, like, why you wanted to name the book Tip of the Spear, and also, like, uh, why do you want to make this argument of the prison as, um, like, a hidden war that's happening? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I didn't set out to make an argument about the prisoners' war. You know, I, I the, the book is really a compendium of what I learned over a period of nine years of researching mm-hmm. the book and my attempt to narrate it in a way that would be helpful for others. Mm-hmm. So I didn't start out saying, okay, I'm going to write a book about the prisoners' war in a kind of academic way, mm-hmm. but rather um, was essentially given an assignment by a veteran of the prison movement to say, look, we need someone like you who has these academic and research skills to try to show how rigorous our analysis of prisons that we developed 50 years ago actually really was. Mm-hmm. So that was sort yeah. of a, an assignment that I was given. Um, and it just so happens that the analysis that was guiding these movements in the 1970s was not about criminal justice. Yeah. Um, it was about war. Mm-hmm. And it also happens to be the case that at this particular moment, political actors on both sides of the struggle were thinking consciously about war and we're applying war strategy and tactics to their movement, right? Yeah. So this isn't something that they just made up, right? This is, a, this is actually a reflection of how the struggle was unfolding and how people understood um, and, and approached that struggle. Mm-hmm. Now, what the war analytic does, you know, by taking, by taking the prison out of a criminal justice framework, and placing it within the, the paradigm of war, mm. it disabuses us of the notion that the system is broken. And you yeah. mentioned, you know, you mentioned George Jackson earlier, right? George Jackson wasn't just assassinated by prison guards. He was assassinated as part of a massive FBI frame-up, mm-hmm. um, which included a program called the Prison Activist Surveillance Program which was, in fact, a continuation of the counterintelligence program. Mm. Um, And one of the things that he says um, in Blood in My Eye, his second book, which came out after he was assassinated, was that we're always going to fail, and we're going to fail until we realize that we're dealing with an enemy who is conscious, Mm. right? A conscious enemy that is also employing strategy. Right. Mm. And there's something about the criminal justice framework, I think, that mystifies that fact. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not that everyone is fully aware and that everyone who works in prisons is thinking about war. Quite the contrary. Right. But there are a few well-placed members of a kind of right wing reactionary proto-fascist intelligentsia Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. are thinking about war and who are applying war strategy and tactics and this is this is also why many of the interventions that uh, people on the left and, and, and abolitionists come up with fail because because they because many times they think they're thinking through a criminal justice framework where your strategy is not necessarily going to be met with a counter strategy or you think that because you pass a law or get a policy implemented that your opponents are going to adhere to that mm-hmm. right yeah. and i think once you start thinking about war then you start thinking about it in a different 
a different kind of way. So I think that's the, the importance of it. Tip of the spear comes from uh, Jalil Muntakim. He said that to me one time in the letter that he wrote to me while he was still behind the walls. He was a BPP, uh, BLA political prisoner for 50 years. He said, we are the tip of the spear. And I never actually really asked him to explain <laughs> what he meant by it. It was a particular context mm -hmm. that he said it to, mm -hmm. said to me. Um, but I started to think about it, right? Tip of the spear is a military metaphor, right? So there's the, it, it, it fit within the paradigm of war. It's the, it's the, it's the first uh, forces to penetrate an enemy's line of defenses. So there's, mm -hmm. there's a couple ways you can interpret it, right? right? On the one hand, you can interpret it as like, you know, political prisoners are the tip of a, of a, of a, a revolutionary spear. But you could also interpret it from the point of view of the state, which is to say that incarcerated people are the tip of a counterinsurgency spear and the actual target of that counterinsurgency is not actually the prison, but it's everyone in the outside world. Mm -hmm. And so they're just the tip of a counterinsurgency spear. And I thought that that dynamism of the way that that could be interpreted was really important because that actually is the nation the, the nature of war right force mm -hmm. and counter force movement and counter movement strategy and counter strategy and everything is reversible and so that dynamism was really important and i try to reflect it in the writing of the book yeah absolutely that definitely answered <laughs> the question that i had um it yeah honestly um you're book gave me a lot to think about with that like how we're approaching um prison abolition and mm -hmm. trying to think of it in that way that um a huge part of state violence and state power is like the ability to incarcerate people and understanding like um kind of how i like was interpreting it was definitely that um people on the inside are trying to you know, be the, um, like, being really the chink in the armor for, um, for the state in that way. Some of them certainly thought about it that way. I mean, the, the thing that, the, the, you know, beginning in the late 60s, incarceration becomes more of a, a primary way to sort of neutralize movements on the streets, right? Mm -hmm. Taking a lot of the people who are uh, participating in the urban rebellions of the 60s out of circulation. Mm -hmm. And they just started just filling up the prisons with these people, right? And but they really gave no thought into what would then happen behind the walls. And they assumed that people would, um, you know, that, 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 that prison administrators would be able to maintain order. Um, and in fact, the precise opposite happens. Mm -hmm. And these, these, these rebellions happen and they're intensely politicized. And some of the people who are in those rebellions are thinking, thinking about their location behind the walls in a strategic way. And George mm -hmm. thought about it in this way, too, right? He talked about how incarcerated people are, are sort of in the citadels of, of, uh, of the state uh, and, and, and that a successful rebellion behind the walls would effectively degrade the prestige of the state, right? So really trying to think strategically about, like, what, does a prison rebellion mean and what does it do? And others 
sort of just got brought along in this process. Some of them became politicized and others, you know, didn't. But what's interesting about prisons is that, you know, um, everyone in them has at least been accused of a crime. And the state was very aware of the porous boundary, the, the very short distance from, you know, social crime to, to political subversion, mm-hmm. right? And so there's something really productive politically from the perspective of a radical movement of having this vast reservoir of people who um, have engaged in various kinds of criminal act, criminalized activity in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think every you've given, hopefully you've given our, our listeners a lot to think about um, in terms of, in terms of all of these like very, um, like, I don't know, a lot of these, I'm just trying to, I'm myself, I'm trying to take it all in, um, having like read, having read most of the book and now hearing your responses, you know, expanding on, expanding on the, um, ideas that, uh, the ideas that you're presenting in terms of, you know, how we can look at, um, and, you know, on how we can look at prison, um, look at prisons and like the, and the carceral system as a whole. And also how we can, I mean, we're, we're witnessing, um, we're witnessing a war and like a genocide happen in front of our eyes right now, um, like halfway across the world in Palestine. So it's mm-hmm. interesting to think about, um, to think about these, yeah, to think about like the state, how the state wages war on, um, on its populations, on its, um, on the populations that it actively chooses to wage war upon. Like nothing happens just because, um, you know, it happens as a coincidence like it is like you said it's a moves and counter moves it's very strategized um on behalf of the state and Mm -hmm. um it's meant to break apart movements and social movements um but we want to ask a question um yeah so we do want to ask one more question um how is the de-gendering and sexual violence inflicted upon black men used as part of pacification in prisons and what is the gender war that is waged on black men within the carceral system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a big question. I wrote, yeah. I mean, you know, like I talk about gender throughout the book, and your question is a, a direct reference to chapter four, mm-hmm. yeah, which I call gender war, which is... Um, you know, a kind of re-narration of the Attica massacre, mm-hmm. which um, occurred on September 13th, 1971. This is how the rebellion was crushed, and it was the single—it was the single bloodiest one-day encounter on U.S. soil. You know, the the famous Attica report says since the Civil War, but it's actually since the Wounded Knee massacre oh, wow. of yeah. uh, 1870s. Mm-hmm. I think I'm not sure mm-hmm. um, so you know it, as gruesome and as brutal as it was the way in which that massacre is narrated I think sanitizes a really important aspect of of the repression which I think also demystifies um, a kind of under analyzed aspect of how prisons work Um, which is, you know, as a regime of institutionalized um, gender violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, 
it's kind it's hard to do the chapter justice in in sort of this the spoken format because I, I try to be very careful and mm-hmm. document yeah. everything meticulously but at a broader level here's what i can say about what i was trying to do in that chapter mm-hmm. which is on the one hand you know it, it's a it's a very disturbing and um brutal chapter in terms of the kinds of um intensely sexualized violence that uh i narrate um mm-hmm. and, and 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 part of this is to um Part of what I wanted to do also, though, was to, to the extent possible, and I don't know how successful I was, was to shift the gaze away from just the suffering black subject, the suffering black body, mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. think about the apparent need, um, to, to think about what, the perpetrators of this violence, why they were doing this, yes. and to link it to sort of deeper lineages of sort of lynching and to think mm-hmm. about the kind of like, you know, the sexualized nature of the way that prisoners of war in Abu Ghraib were treated, um, to think about, you know, the long histories of sexual violence against black men uh, during slavery. Mm-hmm. Um and to sort of demystify the way that that these logics of gender violence are embedded um, in the prison, right? And the last thing I can say, you know, is that ultimately, you know, the goal of this war that I'm talking about, that the prison represents, the goal of it is to render black people as objects. Mm-hmm. to uh, divest them of their political will, their social consciousness, um, and to render them into objects that can be deployed in, in whatever ways might be useful. And so, you know, sexual violence is, is when it's weaponized, and to the extent that it, to the extent that it was weaponized, is, is really, you know, a way to try to kill someone kill someone's spirit, yeah. right, while, pre- while preserving, in some ways, preserving the body. Mm-hmm. And this is very much what was happening um, in Attica uh, in response to the rebellion. But also just part of, it's also I try to show part of the kind of normalized regime, right? You think about the, the strip searches that are a normal part of carceral existence. Mm-hmm. That's a form of legitimated sexual violence and state-sanctioned rape that happens to everyone who's incarcerated like all the time yeah. right yeah. and so what happened during the massacre was really an intensified form of these sort of mundane rituals of sexual violence that incarcerated people of all genders experience all the time mm-hmm. yeah that was a really that was it's a really it's a really hard thing to ask a, um to ask like a single a single sentence question about and also um, a hard topic to give a few minute answer about as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed reading your book and um, I know DJ Ratstar did as well. 
Yeah, that was a particularly difficult part chapter. Of, yeah, yeah, part of the book. Um, it definitely like I totally was able to see how you you were drawing, um, like that type of violence as like a form of pacification that happens. Um, that's at least what I was able to take from it. So, mm-hmm. um, that's why I thought it was kind of important to emphasize that part so that people Absolutely. understand. Yeah. No, definitely. Thank you for asking mm-hmm. that question. Yeah. yeah. Especially mm-hmm. as we see like similar practices, um, similar practices happening abroad as well. Um, it's it's important to it's important to think about, um, like you said, like the state sanctioned um, rape that happens to incarcer- incarcerated folks um, on a day to day basis. And yeah, how but also. Yeah. To incarcerated men specifically, because I think that when people talk about sexual violence in prison, right, Mm -hmm. they they either, you know, they're they're often talking about women, which of course it happens to and we should talk about, right? Absolutely. Or Mm -hmm. they're talking about rape that happens between incarcerated people, which Mm -hmm. happens and we should talk about, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But there's research that says that like at least half or more than half of reported incidents of sexual violence in men's prisons happen from the guard. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very, yeah, that is a very important distinction to make as well. Um, but yeah, as we, you know, thank you so much again for joining us. Um, I know it's like a little bit later in, in your time zone, but really appreciate you for making for making the call in um, in Pacific time and for taking the time out of your day to to talk with us here today um this was a very it's just a, it's a very important a very important book and a very important very important things to that you know our listeners should be should know about and we're really excited to post the recording of this episode um but b- before we end today's interview um where can people find more of your work um and where can folks access this book and or buy it uh, you know, I'm I'm in the ether. I'm in these streets. I'm not too hard to find. Um, <laughs> you can find the book at your your, your local independent bookstore. Um, you know, it, it's out there. Tip of the spear. It, it's around. Ask about it. You'll you'll hear about it. Sounds good. Absolutely. Yeah, I and would we- highly recommend <laughs> that people read this. Um, it's also just not one of those books that I felt like was too dense. I guess like it was right a good read yeah. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right it on. was very yeah, you can I don't know, it really it really grabs you. It's a great piece of work. Thank you mm-hmm. so much for thank you, thank you thank so much you. for sharing. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you I for, appreciate you all. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for yeah. joining us today. Thank you so much for talking with us and expanding on everything. Yeah. <laughs> right on. All right, you have a good rest of your day. Take care. All Bye. right, take it easy. You Bye. as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you to Professor Orsanmi Burton for joining us here today. Hopefully all of our listeners really enjoyed that um, that interview. I know mm-hmm. I did, and I know I'm going to go back and listen to this recording and be like, I should have not stuttered as much and i should have asked a different question um as i as as usually as it usually works out yeah i might go back and just like take notes yeah exactly just go like okay now i can make better connections of what's happening in this book now you do the second read the second (laughs) read of the book yeah (laughs) yeah but um i think 
I'm going to we have a we actually have a decent amount of time left. Twelve minutes. Um I'm gonna go ahead and play I wanna play a song. Um and then we're gonna come back and do our Bad Cop Good Project segment, um, which we have a lot to discuss about. So yeah, yeah we'll be here excuse me, for another 11 minutes. So we're going to play some music and we'll be right back. People to call small to colonize optimism. No name for inmate registries that they put me in prison. I sold the answers and linen. Phantom under the thread. Ten I'm riding in cities where niggas scared of the feds. There's a ghost on my bike. City laid with a bullet. He wrote the scriptures for living and all the ways that he couldn't. Gave up the profit for pennies. No taste of mystery. Put in when labels asked me to sign. So my name don't exist. So many names don't exist. But in the Inglewood. And the trauma came with the rent. Only worldly possession I have is life. Only room that I died in was 25. What's an eye for an eye when niggas won't love you back? And medicines over tax, no name look like you. No name for private corporations to send emails to. Cause when we walk into heaven, nobody's name gonna exist. So I was moving for joy, nakedness, radiance. Your life, your life, your life. 
you've heard about the opiate crisis. Opiates are powerful, pain-reducing medications prescribed by doctors, but they can also be very dangerous. In fact, most overdose deaths involve opiates. So what can you do? A lot. Trouble with opiates often start at home with unused medications in your cabinets or drawers. Opiates could be in pill bottles, syrups, or even prescription patches. Whatever they look like, dispose of unused opiate medications safely before they hurt your family. Find out how to remove the risk at fda.gov slash drug disposal. Lots of cats and kittens need homes. If you're thinking about adopting a feline friend, the Yolo County SPCA has a cat just for you. You can visit our SPCA Cats in Front of Petco or Ace Hardware in Davis on Saturday afternoons. Or you can go to www.yolospca.org to see photos of our adoptable cats and kittens. All right, right before um, we listen to a song, it was called No Name by No Name. Very easy to remember. Um, yeah. <laughs> great, great song. Um, and then we listen to some quick announcements. But we are back. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM. This is No Police Radio, and we're going to jump into our Bad Cop Good Project segment to close out the show today. Mm-hmm. So today's Bad Cop is an organization, the California Prison Labor Authority, or the Cal PLA and the Joint Revenue Program, or sorry, Joint Venture Program, JVP. Um, so Quick, some quick bullet points. In 1982, the C- the CALPLA was established to, quote-unquote, reduce operating costs for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. In 1990, Prop 139 created the Joint Venture Program, allowing private companies to utilize prison labor. Businesses that contract through JVP get tax breaks and are not responsible for employee benefits. So people like McDonald's specifically? Yeah, people like McDonald's, <laughs> which also gives free meals to the IDF. So just another reason to not not go to McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, another and also about one third of California's wildfire service is comprised of inmates, roughly 4000 members working through through the CALPLA. I don't even want to say working, I guess, just like. Uh, I don't know. Can't think of a better word. Yeah, they describe it as work, but they, like, they do, they worked a lot, for instance, like, on the Thomas Fire, Mm -hmm. I remember. Yeah. Uh, And they do not get nearly the same amount of, like, protections and help for when they go out there and risk their lives for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty bad. Yeah. And also, like, little to no payment for the most part oh yeah if absolutely it's, if it's payment it's like a couple dollars an hour if that like that might be a generous amount as well from my estimate but yeah also the 13th amendment allows involuntary servitude as a punishment for a crime so inmates are forced into hazardous labor for cents on the hour um the good and ser- the goods and services made for private companies make their way into into corporate stores um mm-hmm. includes walmart Oh my god, that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Probably yeah. Walmart, you know, McDonald's. McDonald's, like I said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in particular, I remember at the time, like when wildfires were, um, particularly like the big ones, like the Thomas Fire, mm-hmm. were happening. Uh, there was a lot of controversy about that because of particularly there were problems with um them not getting as good of equipment either right. to fight fires which was <laughs> um you know yeah not not great it's definitely kind of going off of Ori's point about you know deploying 
particularly like black people Mm -hmm. as like objects that can just be deployed so in this case it's for capital for these companies for capital gain or for the protection of capital which is like fighting you know which is like fighting wildfires you know like yeah people's huge mcmansions or something like that yeah Yeah. or towns that generate any kind of revenue yeah same with the paradise fire too it's a lot Mm -hmm. of um a lot of prison labor involved in um in maintaining that wildfire um but yeah we're gonna jump right into our good project um and dj ratstar is gonna take us away yeah um so if you haven't heard there's lots of info online for writing for people on the inside we figured that it's really great idea it's that since we're talking about um you know all the different connections that you can make between um the experiences people have in prisons with um abolitionist frameworks You can write to people on the inside and support people that are incarcerated and help to keep their spirits up. Mm -hmm. Um, There's organizations such as UprisingSupport.org, and it provides info on how you can help those facing repression, specifically from summer 2020 during a lot of the uprisings that were happening um, in the wake of uh, the (laughs) the murder of George Floyd. Um, there are also lots of individual support campaigns, pages that list, um, different defendants and prisoners from the 2020 uprisings that you can find on that website. Mm-hmm. We also have a writing to people on the inside guide from specifically the COC website at ucdcopsoffcampus.noblogs.org. Um, as well, if you want, like, specific information to um on how to write to prisoners and someone that i want to give a shout out to is um victor puertas who is somebody that was a forest defender in atlanta for wilani who has been incarcerated um they're indigenous and they specifically were somebody that who was more of a political prisoner um you can find on free victor now on instagram the specific address that you can write to them so i really encourage people listening today to uh write a letter to someone (laughs) either on the website that we just advertised or to victor themselves so right that's something that you're interested in um yeah thanks so much for for getting into that um yeah we our next show is going to be on the 19th february 19th um let's see yeah february 19th same place same time um uh, 4 30 to 5 30 and we'll be back this has been kdbs oh this has been no police radio on kdbs 90.3 fm up next we have kdbs presents 20 questions i'm going to close out with a song this has been local bag and dj ratstar and we'll be back on the 19th or eventually. Yeah, see you nerds later.
You're listening to KDVS Davis on 90.3 FM, broadcasting live from Davis, California. This is listener support.